and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 693. I'm Jim McDowell, hosting the show. I'm back. I was out. Work thing got in the way. But the man of the hour, the man who did, went solo and did a great job of it, Rich, is with me to help us out this time. So it isn't all just Rich. How you doing, man? I'm good. Good to have you back, Jim. That was tough doing it on my own last week, so I'm uh, glad to see you on the other side of the Zoom call. Uh, yeah, it's actually nice to be home. Uh, I spent two weeks on the road traveling for work. If anybody who's ever done it before knows how bad that can get. Hopefully I'm home for a month or two here, and then I'll probably be heading back out again at some point. So. Fingers crossed, because we've got a lot of bike racing coming up. Mm, yes. Eh, well, depends on where we're going and what time we have to work in. <laughs> <laughs> Working second shift at one of our plants is not fun because it's the it's you know essentially 2 p.m. to 11 p.m., and that is not my forte. I'm an early morning person. Not so. conducive to long internet talk show things. <laughs> no, not really. Alrighty, guys, let's get to it. Let's do a little housekeeping. We want to thank Keith Kovac for his continued support of the show and a very special shout out to Rob Fertos. I hope I said that correct, Rob. If I didn't, please drop us a line, motopod at motopodcast.com and give me a pronunciation for that. Uh, he's become a Patreon subscriber to the show. So big shout out. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for that. With that, I think we've had a lot of listener feedback that we've kind of tabled because Rich and I have not been together. So Rich, why don't you give us the first bit of listener feedback? And I think it came from Gary Shavit, right? It did come from Gary Shavit, yeah. Now I'm going to have to try and paraphrase this down because this is kind of Martin Darlington-esque in its length and breadth. Essentially, Gary brings up two points. Uh, well, three points in actual fact. He said that, you know, the start of the Moto2 race, and we're going back a couple of weeks here, obviously. So he was talking about Moto2, which was a bit of a fiasco. We talked about that in terms of the rain stoppage, although we will, we'll get back to that theme. I'll rant again on that one. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's going to come up in the show. Uh, but his main points really were, really, just to paraphrase this down, as I say, Pedro Costa really loves the guy, but was starting to kind of lose faith a little bit that all the promise that we saw last year was maybe a little bit misplaced. But again, I think that this came in from Gary on the 29th of April. So whilst we saw a little bit more of the same from Pedro this weekend just gone, there were, however, some signs of change. So I don't want to launch too far into him. But the main thing that Gary really got into, and I'm going to try and be reasonably politic with this, was expressing some dissatisfaction with a certain Maverick Vinales. So he says, I really hope that Alice Espargaro wins the championship this year. One, for Aprilia's long haul up the ladder, and two, for the phenomenon of a rider winning the championship in the same year that he wins his first race. That's a good point. I don't know when the last time Possibly Mark Marquez in his rookie season. Yeah, it would have to be Marquez's rookie season because he won at Coda in the third round and then just danced to the championship after that. So that was 2013, I believe. Yeah, I think that would have been the last time, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Gary goes on to say, I want to see Maverick Vinales watch as his teammate wins the championship while he can't get the same bike to perform properly. This goes on in this vein for a little while. And as we, indeed, as we have done on this show in the past, Gary brings up, certain aspects of Maverick's behaviour in the past. If we look back to the, what was it, the Moto3 Bluesons team that he was on, which he walked out on after a spat with the team. Of course, last year's horrendous goings-on with Yamaha, which saw him effectively being sacked from the team for gross misbehaviour or negligence, however the determination would have been given at that time. So, yeah, Gary's really just really not a big Maverick Vinales fan. And again, bearing in mind this was 29th of April, and we've had two races since then. Nothing that Maverick has done really in those two races despite the odd flash of promise in terms of lap time over a single lap but nothing has really done much to 
suggest to me that his place in that team is particularly safe. And I'd even go so far as to say within this season, I don't know what you think about this, Jim, but the guy just goes backwards in the race and then is really only getting sort of low-end points positions because other people tend to fall off in front of him it's not really because he's moving forward particularly so it's a pretty harsh email Gary's view is that he's a sport brat and it's time to go and I don't necessarily think there's an awful lot we can say to disagree with that unless you are a you know massive massive Maverick Vinales fan and, and are willing to look past all of the indiscretions and lack of performance I really need to be careful about with this and I, I agree we've been down this road before I think everybody knows kind of where you and I stand on it yeah. is that you have to be aware of what it's going to do to your brand image. You have one person who has towed the company line, has been there through thick and thin, and is now reaping the benefits of the hard work that have been put down. The other one is still having a hard time, doesn't really care, it appears, and is nowhere to be found when it comes to results. And we know that the bike must be good, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of the same thing that you see with the whole um, Polis Bargaro, Mark Marquez thing. One person's making a bike work, another person's not making a bike work, and you're going, what's going on? And not to throw any spoilers out there, but Rich and I will do for the next episode, the 2023 grid. <laughs> and there are prominent people that are on the grid now that are not on my list <laughs> for that one. So just to kind of drop that one down. And I think it's probably the same with you, Rich, with your grid. I mean, we, we've been talking about this and it's just not good. So Gary's email is justified. And honestly, if I'm the team manager there, I would feel the same way Gary does, but you're going to have to do it in a more political way than way it went down at Yamaha. You're just going to have to just say, basically, look, we're not renewing your contract and you should seek employment elsewhere. <laughs> I'll spoil this. I think he winds up on a world superbike. That's just me. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be the graveyard for anybody that bears out a MotoGP, doesn't it? Although, to be fair to World Superbike, I mean, you know, the people that are proper mm. superbike riders, let's say, within that class, possible exception to that would be um, Ikaleka Wona, who's come in and is doing great things on the HRC bike in World Superbike. But, well, I'll just read the, the roundout from Gary's email. So he says, I don't understand why Aprilia don't go up to him in the pits and tear up this year's contract in his face. If he just pulled into the pits and said, I'm not going to risk my life when I can't even get into a point turning position, he, Gary, would accept that. But trying to break the bike as he did last year, he says, go and buy your own Yamaha if you want to do that sort of stuff. So strong words, but I can't really disagree with a lot of what he says because, you know, as we've said many times before, this is a performance and results-based business and Maverick has had quite a bit of time on that bike now. And he has the added major problem that his teammate is, okay, who has a lot of experience on the bike, it's true. But nevertheless, he's sticking it on the podium more or less every race now. I think we've said it before on the show. Maverick Vinales is a professional motorcycle racer. Your job is to be able to get onto a motorcycle and within a reasonable amount of time, and by that I mean some preseason testing, one, two races, you should be able to figure out that motorcycle in a way that you can get a result from being on that motorcycle. Jorge Lorenzo went to Ducati, struggled until Mugello, which is the next race on the calendar, and won. Yeah. So it isn't impossible to make a bike work for you. You are just not getting it done. And when things do go wrong, you sort of want to throw the toys out of the pram. Yeah. And 
to be quite honest, Maverick's whole demeanour, both on and off the bike, is one of a guy that doesn't really look as if he particularly wants to be there in any capacity to me. I mean, you do wonder whether early retirement is beckoning for this guy because he's made his millions. I mean, it's not as if he needs the money. And, you know, he's got a big problem now with two very fast ex-Suzuki or soon-to-be ex-Suzuki riders on the market. And I bet you anything, one of them will end up on that on the seat that Maverick currently has. We'll see. But that would be my view. And I think Maverick's time is now very, very numbered because most of the rest of the teams on the grid either don't want him or wouldn't risk it, to be honest. Yep. Thanks for that, Gary. That was a good one. I'd say I did have to sort of cut that down a little bit because it was a long email and some of it's a little bit contentious, but and we don't want to get sued uh, by Maverick Vinales because he's got more money than we have, Jim. But good point. You can't get blood from a turnip, Rich. True. Yeah, yeah you can squeeze, but nothing's coming out. So True. there we go. That was Gary. That's Gary. Next one we're going to cover is from Keith Kovac. And this goes back to the question that had been posed by my friends when we were at Coda is like, hey, there's a crown jewel event for auto racing. Monaco being an example in Formula One, Daytona 500 for NASCAR here in the United States, um, Le Mans for endurance racing. He's like, well, what is it for motorcycles? And we threw some stuff out there, what we kind of thought. So Keith kind of gets into that. And he says how I was thinking about what were the blue chip races for MotoGP. He says, from my perspective, when I became a big fan of the sport, to me, the races that meant the most were Assen and Jerez. To me, learning more about the sport, it seems the teams brought out that little extra to win these. In addition, the atmosphere of the event, the number of fans and the energy they bring made specifically Assen feel like a big deal. I could be wrong, and this could just be a more recent trend, but these two races to me are a big deal. He then says on a similar topic in BSB, would Cadillac Park be the big race for those guys and what AMA Moto America race would be the big one to win? I agree with Keith here on this. It, well, it did seem like that years ago, right? There was always something good that happened at Hereth, but it was always, that was the first race that happened in Europe. And it was at the time you were developing motorcycles all the time. So they kind of came with some new parts and pieces because you couldn't fix it for the flyaway races, right? Well, yeah. You realize, whoops, we made a mistake. The chassis is not stiff enough. So guess what? The guys in Japan were welding gussets all over everything and shipped a new frame to Hereth. And so it makes that one feel kind of special. Anyway, Jim, it's always had that crazy last turn as well. So it's always tended yeah. to throw up memorable last lap things going on. And they do tend to stick in the memory. I think that's mm-hmm. a big thing with Hereth as well. Let's be honest, it's not a historic race compared to some others, certainly not against Aston, because I think Hereth only came onto the calendar in the early 1980s, I guess, quite a long time ago now. But yeah. um, but it's, you know, Aston's been on the calendar since the 1950s, pretty much every year, I think, if not every year. So there is a difference there. But Hereth is quite memorable because of that last turn. Mm-hmm. Assen is again cathedral of speed i think everyone recognizes that Assen is a very special place i'll quote colin edwards as i've done many times before they neutered it because i that's when i kind of lost big time yeah it lost something i'm sorry you yeah just like if you want to think of it when they neutered hockingheim ring and they neutered that for formula one i understand the safety aspect of things and i get that to do this was necessary for it to evolve and keep a race that's there as opposed to we can't go there anymore because there's not a way to be for it to be safe for everyone i still think it has a lot of glam to it but it has it as you gain more races in a calendar you take each one of those races and subtract some of the specialness from that race because it has to go somewhere else to another race so people who may have chosen to go to Assen and be part of that spectacle don't go anymore because there's a race closer to home so it's yeah. changed over time and I think we kind of finally came to the conclusion that basically really I think riders tend to think of maybe Hereth, maybe Assen 
and probably Magello as places that they would like to win at personally. Yeah. I think that's kind of, an, I think that would be a, like an agreement among all of the riders or fairly most of them would agree that these are places that are nostalgic, historic, and mean something. However, I do think every rider wants to win his home Grand Prix. You want to win in front of your fans. I think Schwantz always said he wanted to win at Laguna. I don't, can't remember if Schwantz actually ever won, won there, to be honest. I can't remember him doing it. I can remember Rainey doing it. I can remember Lawson doing it. I, I can remember Roberts doing it. Well, Roberts won there, but he wasn't racing 500 GP at the time. But Nicky looked forward to going to Laguna. He was so happy to go back and have a race in front of his fans. He was always happy to be in Indianapolis because it was so close to home and all of his families, everything was there. So we'll put the home race in there as well. Yeah. And then I we kind of thought about it like maybe the the manufacturers kind of maybe are going to be really excited to go back to Japan. At least, you know, the Asian makers are going to be that way. You know, we've got a couple of European-based manufacturers. So, like, Red Bull probably really wants to win at Red Bull Ring. Ducati wants to really win at Mugello. You know, the Japanese are going to want to win at Motegi. So, those are all probably fair statements there. And then you came up with some stuff for BSB, Rich? Yeah, well, Keith also asked on a similar topic in BSB, would Cadwell Park be the big race that everybody wants to win? So, I replied to Keith on this one. I made the point that BSB is a pretty tough call to make because we have such a variety of tracks over here. I kind of figured that probably if you took a straw poll of the riders, I guess there'd be quite a lot of love for uh, Donington Park simply because it's still an international level track, but it's still got enough of a challenge to it. It's still enough of a scratcher sort of a track, if you like. It's pretty safe and it has great heritage as well. You know, it's, it's lamented as an ex-MotoGP venue these days. Obviously, Silverstone has the race now. So you've got from Cadwell, which is a proper scratches track and it's up and down. You've got Thruxton, which is just flat out and scary fast. You've got a bit of everything here, really. You've got Knock Hill, which is a tiny little kind of almost like an oval, really. So, yeah, I'd say probably Donington would be the one. Interesting choice there, Rich, for that one. Keith goes on. He asked, what about Moto America or AMA at the time? And to be honest with you, Keith, and I said this to you in the email, but for all the listeners, if you'd asked me this 15 to 20 years ago, I'd have told you Daytona in a heartbeat. There was nothing greater than that particular race. But with the DMG and the buying of the AMA, now it's Moto America and it's all of its different guises and everything that's happened between now and then. And I got to go with probably the Superbike race at Circuit of the Americas because it's the only time that the American riders can show their talent or their skill to the world at one time. Because you have the world has come to you at your home and now you can show them what you've done. So I would think that people would really want to win that race at Coda. Plus, I think Coda really is really the only FIM grade level racetrack in the US. Um, mm. I don't think Laguna holds that anymore. What about Indy? Would that have I think Indy, it? I think Indy may still have it because I don't know how long that homologation is for, but it would definitely probably be easier to get Indy homologated again than it would be to get Laguna homologated again, given yeah. you know just where we are with the bikes and everything. So, And Jim, just a quick yes. question. Read Daytona, because I, I don't know this. Yeah. They only run the 600s there for the 200 now, is that right? So is that purely that a safety correct. grounds thing in terms of the superbikes not being allowed to race there anymore? Yeah, it got to a point somewhere... It was somewhere in the DMG era, please don't ask for years, that they decided that, hey, we're not going to make the Superbike race the 200 miler. And it had a lot to do with, I think it was the fact that you had so many factory teams that pulled out that nobody could really afford to do major tire testing for Dunlop. And I think Dunlap 
had some concerns with the high horsepower, the banking, and longevity of the tires for the 200 because they used to run a superbike race. But what they did is they reconfigured the infield part of Daytona so that you would miss turns one and two on the banking and you only ran the banking for turns three and four. So you, you kind of came out on the backstretch. And if you look at a satellite Google image of Daytona International Speedway, you'll see kind of what I'm talking about. They kind of came through the International Horseshoe. They cut back across the track, turned and went back to the other horseshoe and ran it backwards and then left and went out across all the paved area for the stock cars right onto yeah. the backstretch. Mm-hmm. I think there was a couple, because there were a couple of bad crashes with people who were testing tires that caused Dunlop just to say, this isn't, we're not getting anything out of this. And basically they said, nope, we're not going to do this anymore. And so they did that. And then even at that, now they've completely, I think, given up on actually doing a, a super bike tire, but um, it's now being a 600 race, the racing's still good. I mean, if you've seen the races this year, the racing's good and there's some pretty crazy stuff that happens in them mm. and whatnot. But yeah, that's sort of the story backstory on that one. Okay. I remember. No, I was curious. <laughs> so fair enough. And uh, I think there's one more piece of uh, listener feedback, Rich. I think this is a Twitter that you got. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned Chris Boyce on Motopod before, and he and I have been swapping some messages on Twitter, as you say, and won't read all of the messages out. But what Chris busied himself with doing with picking up on something that we've been talking about, and that was a couple of 2023 lineups. Now, I know we're planning to have a proper talk about this in terms of our views, and this is something that changes day by day at the moment in terms of what we think might happen. And obviously, some spanners have been thrown in the works, uh, or one particularly big spanner just lately, which we'll come to. But this is Chris's list, which excludes Suzuki. Okay, without preempting what we're going to talk about, but I was talking about the Suzuki situation last week, and unless anybody's been living under a rock, everybody knows the Suzuki situation. So I'm just going to quickly run down this list. I don't know that we necessarily need to spend too much time talking about it now, but we'll keep it in mind for when we do jump onto this topic perhaps next week. So he's got Aprilia Factory, Alicia Spargro and Alex Rins which is interesting because I was saying I thought a Suzuki rider might end up in that team. Uh, Factory Ducati, Bagnaia and Martin. I'm not so sure on that one now. (laughs) Uh, Pramac, he's got Miller and Zarco. Uh, Grassini, he's got Bastianini and Digi Antonio. I definitely think that's not going to be the case next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, VR46, he's got Bezecchi and Marini, so no change. Uh, Repsol Honda, Mark Marquez and Joanne Mir. Mm -hmm. That's quite possible. LCR, Alex Marquez and Ayagira. KTM, Factory, Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira. KGM Tech 3, Raul Fernandez and Remy Gardner. Yamaha, as in Monster Yamaha Factory. Fabio Quattararo and Celestino Vietti. That one got my attention. <laughs> and then wow. Yamaha okay. RNF, Franco Morbidelli and Darren Binder. So that would leave of the current crop of riders outside of MotoGP from next year onwards. That would be Andrea Davizioso, Takenakigami, Maverick Vinales, who we were just talking about in glowing terms, and Paul Spargaro. So, yeah, quite an interesting list, that, from Chris, and a lot of that I agree with. Obviously, that was written, not obviously, that was written before the Le Mans weekend took place. So, again, we've got another race, a load more politics and goings on to factor into what might happen. Some big news breaking concerning Jack Miller at the moment. Well, not news, speculation, but based on some, obviously, some paddock insider chatter going on. So we'll come to that. Anything jump out at you on that just briefly, Jim? I mean, I, again, we want to talk about this in some detail next week. Yeah. We're on off, off weekend, but... He keeps Bastianini at Grissini. Like, no. <laughs> no, I can't see that. No. <laughs> no. No, 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 and no. <laughs> yeah, without giving too much away, because I have changed my... 
2023. I thought I had it good until the Suzuki bombshell, which I think we should probably move towards talking about. Yeah. And then I've been reevaluating it each time there's been a race. We honestly have no idea where all this is going to be, but it's going to be fun speculation. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Until everything gets confirmed. However, the Suzuki thing, again, like you said, somebody living outside of a rock. Suzuki has a love-hate relationship with motorcycle racing, at least in the world level, all right? I think Suzuki kind of was there at the beginning of World Superbike, and there was a full factory effort team. I'm trying to think. I know a couple people have won world titles on a Suzuki. I think Biagi did on a Suzuki, if I'm correct, because it was- certainly. He certainly started his World Superbike life on a Suzuki. I thought he won a title with it. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Suzuki, I think Suzuki has won one or two World Superbike titles, and they're nowhere to be found again now. They yeah. were in MotoGP. They were out of MotoGP. They said, we're coming back because 2008 is a financial crisis, right? We lost a bunch of people. They said, no, we're, we're, we're coming back or whatever. And they have. And now suddenly they just said, we're leaving again. And I think... Everybody has read about this. I think it's all this point has been belabored, belabored enough. But where I want to kind of go with this, you and I both saw this on Twitter, guys. So Rich and I both kind of found this at the same, at the same time. We both commented on it. It is a tweet from a lady named Maddie Scordia. And it's yep. in Rich's timeline. It's in my timeline. So at Richard Jowett, at Moto RGV, you can find this. The actual report is on MotorcycleSports.net. And she makes some absolutely fantastic points in this. And I think that's what I kind of want to talk about. I agree. Because this is the real crux of the problem with Suzuki. And she bang on nailed this to the wall. Nailed it. Completely said it there. I'm not going to read her entire article. It is completely and totally worth you to look at it. But her point was you, meaning Suzuki, are incapable of selling yourself in a market. And I thought about that for a second. I thought, what, you know, what you're crazy. What are you talking about? And then she makes this question. She says, think about it from the consumer side. And she puts it blunt, bluntly here. And again, you have to read this article, guys, because it is absolutely amazing. But she says, you as a consumer already know how to fill in the blanks. What does Yamaha mean to you? Monster Energy. What does Honda mean to you? Repsol Honda. What does KTM mean to you? Red Bull. Red Bull KTM. And suddenly Suzuki, having won a world championship with Juan Mir, can't find a title sponsor for that motorcycle. Because is that how do you pronounce it, Rich? X Star. That's their in-house oil right. brand. It's not a sponsor as such. I mean, it's Correct. just internal marketing. They're promoting their own brand of motor oil. Yeah. You couldn't find Pepsi and put like amp energy drink on the bike or something. You couldn't have found Rockstar and put that on the motorcycle. You have failed to sell yourself at the peak, at the peak time that you could gain a corporate sponsor who would be willing to put, I don't know, what do you think it costs to run a MoGB team, Rich? I was going to throw out 100 million euro. Uh, well, I would certainly say that the bottom end of the scale, it's got to be 40, 50. And you could well imagine... Because obviously, depending on who's riding for you, you've got some mm-hmm. big salaries to throw in there, potentially who your rider is as well. So I would imagine the likes of Repsol, Honda are uh, easily churning out 100 million if not more. over a year, if not more. Because I mean, I'm just trying to think, you get 400 million for a Formula One team, economy of scale, four wheels divided by four gets me to 100 million. Yeah, right? That's, yeah, that's okay, kind of where enough. I'm at. So something yeah. like that. She, this, I mean, this is such a great point. Again, you could not sell yourself to anybody else. What are your, you know, Brivido doing there? 
You're that's part of your job. It's not Suzuki's job to take their marketing department to go find them a sponsor for the race bike. Okay. They're they're trying to sell race bikes, but you as the team need to be selling yourself to be able to find somebody who's going to want to foot that bill. And there's more energy drinks out there than you can name a shake a stick at. I mean, even Rich, you could have even gone to Rich Energy and got some. Well, Jim, potentially. Crikey, I mean, you got Leopard, which is a drink I've never, ever seen on a shelf anywhere, but, you know, clearly got money to spend and for years have been trying to find a way to get into MotoGP. They probably would have had Suzuki's arm off at the elbow for an opportunity. You know, okay, people might say, well, they've got Australia Galizia, but okay, but that's really only because they got a Spanish rider and it's a tiny contributor probably in terms of the amount of fairing space it's taken up. And you can't even run it at half the tracks because you're not allowed to advertise beer, even zero as we found out in the morning, they have to have to take it off. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're, as you say, there must have been one of the energy drinks companies just to choose one segment of the sponsorship uh, sector that would have been willing to come on board. But what Maddie, you know, it's a really scathing, brilliantly written piece of work, and I really enjoyed reading it. But effectively, what she was saying was that the board in Hamamatsu just lack any sort of vision of the big picture, what it is they're trying to achieve, why they're even there. Because they've never had any sponsorship on that bike, really. No. N- nothing substantial. It's, it's a beautiful look. bike for it in terms of the blue and the silver and stuff. It's a very unsullied look, and I love it. But uh, that's no good if it's not there anymore. So I'd rather it was splattered in sponsorship to keep it there. But the last great sponsor they had was Rizla. Yeah. That's pre- it. And then, of course, you now, that that was what? Uh, cigarette, papers, yes. tobacco. Yeah, papers. Yeah, Papers, okay. Yeah, so you couldn't keep that on the bike. The, the, the EU rules said you can't you can't advertise that way, yeah. right? And then you did nothing and you walked away. You you said you just took it in-house and said, well, I guess we got to do this because we have to from the board standpoint because we made a contractual agreement to stay. And so then here you go again. It was never anything but X star, right? Again, you could have you could have easily gotten Leopard. I'm sure they have been more than thrilled to be part of that. Yeah. I'm sure they would have, right? You, there's got to be other people that are out there that want to be able to be a part of this. What I read, what Maddie's saying is that they've never had the appetite, the will, the foresight, the desire to go out and actually make that happen. And I think it's now becoming very clear, and I haven't, this isn't part of Maddie's article, but just what I think, that the loss of Davide Brivio was absolutely critical in what's happened now. Yeah, people can look at the share price of Suzuki and stuff, but and it's very hard to measure that because, you know, you can't compare them with Honda because they're di- completely different size companies. Their portfolio of what they do is different, et cetera, yep. et cetera. And nobody could have predicted the war in Ukraine. So, yeah, the trading situation is difficult. But if it was costing Suzuki as a business you know, 30% of what it currently costs them because the rest of the bill was being footed by big time sponsors, then perhaps their decision would be different. It, you know, it wouldn't be such a big cost to them. But as you say, Jim, they bit by bit, they pulled out of just about every meaningful piece of world levels motorsport. Right. I mean, I don't know in Moto America if they've got anything particularly going. I mean, Yoshimura is kind of almost gone, isn't it? Yeah, so basically Suzuki was never a factory bike in the U.S. that I can remember or know about. It was always a Yoshimura Suzuki. Okay, the de facto factory team, because in the 90s, uh, Yoshimura had access to the factory and the factory would give them special bits, parts, pieces, etc. Yeah. Over time, Yoshimura has now faded away and Yoshimura is nowhere to be found 
in the class at all. And really the only people still running a Suzuki is Chris Aldrich's group. If you know Chris Aldrich, he does Road Racing World, the magazine. His kid is also an editor and works there. And his kid um, basically runs the team. And it's an M4 Suzuki, which is an exhaust manufacturer. And that's about it. They're the only ones that are on a Suzuki. There's, there is essentially... Even Yamaha has now walked away from a factory, a full factory motorcycle. Then that's why people have been clamoring that you need to change how the rules are and whatnot with motor. That's a whole nother, let's stop there and yeah. go on. But but again, I found it interesting when she comes to the point where she says, hey, look, here's all the, all the motorcycles that are built and sold by you. And Kawasaki makes the least, but they're winning hand over fist in World Superbike. And they can't translate that to sales of units which I found shocking. And then Suzuki's like the next on that list, I believe, as far as units sold. And then it's Yamaha. And it's not a small jump to go from Kawasaki. Kawasaki was 491,000 units a year. Suzuki's like 624,000. That, that's only 200,000 units. That's really nothing between them. Mm. But it is a chasm, folks. It jumps from 624,000 units to 4,100,000 units for Yamaha. And if you think that's a chasm, get ready for this chasm. <laughs> Honda builds and sells. 15,100,000 units of bikes a year. Whoa. That's a lot of bikes. That's a lot of bikes. <laughs> I don't know, to be fair, I mean, I don't know if that's all of the two-wheel bikes that they build. I think it probably would have Obviously, they're be. different size companies and they have different priorities yeah. and so on and so forth. But as you say, Jim, that sort of Kawasaki, Suzuki, what would you call them? League Division 5 compared to just about <laughs> everybody else. I mean, we don't know. Obviously, there's no figures in there for KTM, Ducati and so on. But you'd have to figure they'd be way down in the bottom. But yeah, Suzuki, just small-minded in terms of their ambition, reactionary in the way that they do things. Completely missing the whole concept around brand, bikes, partners, sales, and, lo- and loyalty. I mean, that's the key thing. And even I'm thinking about whether I want to buy another Suzuki, you know, because I'm really ticked off about this one. I understand trading is difficult, but it's like that for everybody. And I think, you know, the ship sailed some time ago uh, over the whole, you know, you win the race on Sunday, you sell a bike on. But it's more complex than that now. There are, it's, it's way more complicated purely than that. But this just smacks of, I mean, even the board, I mean, they signed a deal to stay in MotoGP for five years, less than yep. one year ago. And suddenly they're ripping that up. And I think they've obviously had quite a nasty shock with the way that Dorna have reacted to this. And I did touch on this on the solo show last week, I think. But Dorna got properly burned by Kawasaki back in 2011, was it? Oh, sorry, 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 2008. Uh, when they pulled out in similar-ish circumstances, let's say. And I think the contracts that Dorna had with the factories at that time were found to be, let's just say, somewhat wanting in a situation like this. So the contracts were substantially revised and tightened up. And I think this is going to cost Suzuki quite a lot of money to get themselves out of this one. So I still think, you know, once a company makes a decision like that, uh, and particularly a Japanese company, they are not going to want to lose face and have to walk backwards on it. So I'm sure that they'll take the medicine or some kind of a compromise deal would be struck. But it's just rotten from top to bottom, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's terrible. The people I really feel terrible for is the team themselves. Yeah. Mir, Rins are the headpieces of that. Okay, I feel sorry for the riders, but they have enough talent that they should be picked up by somebody else. But think about the mechanics, the press officers, um, catering, all of those people. So I think, and this is just me, and I'm spitballing here, drawing it, spinning a yarn, if you will. I think Dorna is going to punish Suzuki to the point where there's going to be enough money to run those two bikes next year. Now, are they ran as a Suzuki brand? Are they ran as some else i don't know is anybody going to be willing to jump on them and ride them yeah somebody will 
right? Because it's the chance to be a MotoGP rider. Now, I do hope that since that slot is open, according to Carmela Espelita, right? He's the chief. He says that there's been plenty of inquiries for someone to jump into that. But I'm sitting there thinking, who? There's one potential candidate, and only one, I think. I mean, anybody that thinks BMW is going to suddenly jump in, never in a million years. Kawasaki ain't coming back. Things have not changed, really, in terms of the decision that they made to pull out before. It's not gotten any easier. Mm-hmm. I The only hope I could see, and this is complicated, and again, I don't know all the legalities of this, and obviously there's lots of very thick contracts involved with all of this, but my understanding, having listened to some of the people that we listen to regularly in terms of other podcasts, is that those two slots are for a works factory team. So it cannot be taken by an independent team. The rules don't allow for that. And Dorna is contractually required to financially support a set number of teams and they're already at the maximum on that. So there isn't extra money as things stand to bring another independent team in. So it has to be a works factory slot the only company i think that would even consider it potentially capable would be triumph but as to whether or not because they're in moto gp in terms of moto 2 engine supply already whether some deal could be done jim as you say to run bits of the suzuki setup don't know but i mean i really can't envisage that suzuki even though they're walking would ever let their intellectual property go in terms of the engine not certainly not to a rival manufacturer mm. so it's difficult to see how there's that those two slots are filled next year see i'm thinking something along this line remember how you had mahindra in moto 3 i'm mm. wondering if you you can call things what you want to call them right so if suzuki leaves the bikes and perhaps maybe Maybe a mechanic or two to be able to keep that running and you have a deal worked out that after next year, all that property comes back to you and goes into a crusher that you get someone like Mahindra to come as an Indian based company and say, Hey, this is the factory Mahindra. Maybe again, don't know. But you know, the thing of it is, is like, if it's got to be a factory, I just can't see anybody stepping up to do it. Mm. I really don't. Well, certainly not in the present economic conditions. Exactly. No, I mean, yeah, you can say, oh, yeah, BMW is going to want. I think there was a lot of people who wanted to jump in as a satellite team, as a privateer team. I think there's a bunch of Moto2, Moto3 teams that would like to have a progressional ladder and would have would love to take the spot. I think what will happen is that, again, this speculation, again, theory, I'm spitballing people. Perhaps, and I see this as the only people that could do it is if what if the deal was worked out to where, no, it's not a factory team, but they have factory bikes. Well, that leaves the door open for KTM to put two more people on their bikes. And honestly, KTM does need more people on their motorcycles because they kind of are in a funk right now. Yeah, big time, yeah. So you have, I mean, we know KTM is a big player. They're obviously serious about what they're doing in MotoGP. So if you could say, like, you kind of slide over to Dorna, like, hey, uh, you know, um, you know, we can get one of these other teams to run it. We'll give them factory bikes like this year's. So it's a factory bike. Why don't we just let that kind of slide and everybody's all happy until you can find someone to take that provisional spot as a full factory or something. Maybe there's a lot of backdoor work that's going to be done here to make something happen. I, cause somehow, some way there will be the exact same number of motorcycles on the grid. It will not be that there are two less motorcycles on the grid. It isn't going to happen. Dorna will not let it happen. And I, I don't know how they're going to do it, but they're not going to let it happen. That, that I'm almost hundred percent positive of. Well, I was listening to Simon Patterson, who we like a lot, or, you know, I listened to 
you know, everything that he puts out. I read a lot of his Twitter stuff as well. And I'm pretty sure he was absolutely adamant that those two slots are going to be vacant next year because there is no contractual workaround or will to make it happen. It's just too complicated. And it kind of, I don't, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, I suppose, Jim, because some of this is relevant to the race. But I do have a slight worry at the moment. It's growing incrementally, sort of race by race at the moment, which is that MotoGP is starting to smell a little bit Formula One-ish in the sense that it's getting more and more expensive all the time. There's more and more races all the time. Too many races, in fact, in my view. And there are things now creeping in, like aero, for example, which are starting to create problems with the actual racing. And if you lose the brilliance of the racing, then you are then going to have knock-on problems with other things, which is people not being interested to watch anymore because nothing much happens that's worth your time. So I think MotoGP is in a tricky moment at this point. And hopefully Dorna and Carmelo and all the many people that work for that organisation under his leadership are going to sort of figure this out but I do think shapeshifters aero all these things really need to be seriously looked at because they cost a ton of money once everybody's got them really you're back to a level playing field again so just take them away and at least create an environment that will encourage some other manufacturers potentially to come in and even in Formula One which I know we sort of hate to keep bringing it up all the time but Formula One has decided that the engines that they're currently running are far too complicated, far too expensive. They just take too long to develop to a sort of race winning package. So from 2025, I think it is, or 26 possibly in Formula 26. One, they're, they're simplifying that engine. And yet, yeah, and behold, as soon as that's agreed and announced, in comes Audi, in comes VW Group, you know, Porsche as a brand coming in. So I think, I mean, it's probably a bigger discussion for another day and certainly something that would be good to talk on our next round table with the Patreon uh, subscribers. But I think we need to have a bit of a debate about this because for me, MotoGP is going up a bit of a blind alley at the moment and it spells trouble. I can't disagree with you. I think it's a, it's a great topic for another another day, an off week. We can yeah. sit down and discuss it in even more depth. But there is racing that needs to be talked about. So we can move into the, the actual racing from Le Mans. Yeah. So I will say it first. It wasn't the greatest weekend of racing that we've ever seen. However, Le Mans was actually warm and sunny and people were still falling off. We've always blamed the weather for that particular issue because it's always been much like Britain, dreary, rainy and cloudy. <laughs> and cold right at this time of year in that part of france that tends to be the weather yeah Mm -hmm. really quite chilly so it was really very very different this time because i was thinking it was actually like a weekend or two later this year because of mandalika and coda being where it was and whatnot yeah could that may well be certainly i went to the race in golly i mean it's a long time ago now 2003 that was the famous year where rossi and jibbano on the rcvs were duking it out Mm. and i'm pretty sure did Jibbano get Rossi on the last turn? I think he did. It was he did, a, yeah. It was a hell of a race. But again, it was cold, just constantly raining there that weekend. Crazy, crazy place to go as a fan as well. I mean, you do not get any sleep there. Just engines revving all night long. Craziness. Anyway, I mean, that's a whole different story. But um, so the weather was kind of almost the big talking point of the weekend, really, wasn't it? Because it was so unexpected to be hot and sunny like that. And there were expectations that it was going to be very wet on race day, although that didn't prove to be the case with one little blip, which we'll get to. Yep. Let's start with Moto3. Yep. And uh, quickly through qualifying, I think things have settled in a little bit in qualifying because really the only person who was out of place in Q1 was on Chu. And he legitimately was only 
in that position because he had a wicked high side at the museum corner, I think, maybe, mm-hmm. perhaps. And he tossed himself to the moon on a Moto3 bike, which is impressive to do. And he did it quite well. I have full marks for that. And he was a little bit battered up and bruised. He was going for a time to get into the Q2 session and had his problems. So, there, so he was definitely not going to be there. He did, however, come through with Falon, Bertoli, and uh, Ricardo Rossi. So those guys got to move on and move through into the Moto3 QP2. It was a rather dull Q2 qualifying session because somebody named Fagia just decided to be fast. No one was close to Fagia. Fagia just wound up doing his thing. So Fagia wound up being first. His teammate Suzuki was second quick. Masia, then the, the Brazilian Morena were there. So it was crazy. Just no one could touch Fagia going into it. It's just the way that it went down. Bit like with uh, the last race, Le Mans is not a place that he's historically gone brilliantly well at, but that Leopard was looking so quick in a straight line again down the main straight. Yep. Can't figure that out. And, and as you say, Jim Suzuki, his teammate, actually stepped up this weekend as well and did a much better job, which is good for his prospects. I think you did this in the in the solo show. What Suzuki looks terrible in the Leopard team. And with Artigas looking as good as he is, and you had Artigas there, what did you let him go? Mm. I thought about that after you said it. I ain't, I'm always um, on tangents. Why not have another one? <laughs> it's just reminded me as well. I was watching a bit of the Moto3 free practice. It was one of the sessions on the Friday. And Suzuki was, you know, he was in solidly in the top 10. But he came into the pits, into the pit box. And, you know, they, they sort of walk through and sit down on their chair at the back. And not mm-hmm. a single member of the team looked at him or came over and spoke to him. He looked quite isolated in that team as if he didn't want to be there and nobody was really too fussed if he was there, you know? Mm-hmm. So based on the year that he's been having, you wouldn't be terribly surprised if that was the kind of the vibe, let's call it, right within that team box. So in that context, his performance over the rest of the weekend was actually pretty good and's mm-hmm. probably done him, a, you know, quite a lot of favours, I should think. But uh, yeah, it was, it was quite uncomfortable to watch, actually. I took note of it and thought, I must mention that on the show. So it just reminded me. So having seen that as well, here's my conspiracy theory. Oh, goody. Oh, this is a good yeah. one. Come on. Yeah. Would you not agree that Leopard is the de facto factory Honda effort in Moto3? Mm. Ooh, a... Well, they're consistently the front running Honda, aren't they? Correct. If you look at it over the years, they're the ones that have tended to be. But I don't know if I go so far as to call them sort of factory, because I mean, the engines are sealed, right. aren't they? And sort of handed around and so on. So I, there's obviously yeah. something going on there, though. I mean, you can't explain it any other way. How about this? Let's put it this way. Leopard is the favorite son of Honda in that class. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. So what if you look at Honda, they've got a they are seeing some talent progress through. Agura, chief among them, I think we all know where he's going to be next year. Mm-hmm. However, they got to find somebody else to be there on that bike, and they're not sure where they're going to come from. So if you're Honda and you got a favorite son team, you ask for a favor because you need to evaluate a rider on a bike that you know is a good bike and a team that you know is a good team to determine whether or not you want to spend any more time bringing that rider along. Because and what really kind of sold me on this conspiracy theory is Again, how the team really didn't care whether he was there or not. It's like, look, you're here because you have to be here. And we know why you're here, but we really don't care that you're here. Yeah. And that's kind of what sealed the deal for me. So that's, my, it was, that's it was my conspiracy theory for that. Quite uncomfortable to watch that little kind of 30 second snippet, but he just looked totally on his own. But I mean, I mean, in fairness to Suzuki, he's bloody quick. 
but yeah. he's just very quick but inconsistent and sometimes change a team suddenly everything clicks into place and suddenly you're a world champion and stuff well that's clearly not going to happen this year with uh, Tatsuki Suzuki but even Fodger's on a pretty poor run of form so it's not just on that one side of the box but um, anyway we'll come to that yeah I agree so let's get on to the actual race as it went down as it started off Foggia got the whole shot he's followed by his team well he was overtaken by Morena and the Brazilian who left it super late going into the Dunlap chicane and came out on top and quite honestly it looked like Marrera was kind of pulling away a little bit it was followed by Suzuki and I don't think we got past two laps when we got spits of rain that had been predicted for the race show up and what happened at the last two turns of the track simultaneous synchronized crashing of about five different Moto3 bikes into the final turn and into the gravel trap along with a few others on the entry into turn 13 which caused a red flag and a stoppage of race again we had rain that causes a stoppage now thank goodness all these guys were located very close to pit entry so that they could easily get across the track and get their bike back to the pits to be worked on because we have the dread at one bike rule warning a rant is coming why <laughs> why this is not saving anybody anything again we've had this discussion before same as in moto 2 the same thing applies here in moto 3 there are the haves and the have-nots of the paddock yep i agree that leopard could easily have another bike sitting there they could easily have two bikes sitting there ktm could easily do that gas gas could easily do that star grotto with max could easily afford to have two more bikes sitting there in fact i'm sure that there's bikes hanging out in the trucks they're just in pieces okay and again you can say well it's a cost savings jim yep okay what cost are you saving here because you're now forcing the mechanics to do repairs to a motorcycle in an extremely short amount of time and the one thing that i caught was the mechanics i think for the gas gas guys because both gas gas guys went down sir Guevara and garcia both went down and they actually use still use a cable pull throttle system to actuate a throttle body for the injection so it's a cable that's still there you're in the gravel trap who's to say that there's not gravel dust or grit grime inside of these cables where when you're going to wind up having a throttle that's going to stick on you in the most worst part in time as literally just on the grounds of safety alone i would think you should have two bikes for every class admittedly some people are not going to be able to afford that and i understand that as well but i would think that from a safety standpoint you'd want to do it you have any thoughts there rich uh, well i totally agree with you i mean in fact i think there are probably some teams that are spending more with all the skullduggery involved in having partially assembled bikes and all the logistics and storage and you know just have another bike you know it's just so simple and as you say jim it is a genuine safety issue in a situation like that so i agree with that the other talking point i wanted to bring up which is again to do with safety uh, and it's another rant, I'm afraid, against race direction from me, which is race direction allowing bikes to circulate at race speed on slick tyres when rain is falling for at least a lap. And what happens, exactly like we saw in Portimao, a multi-rider crash. And I just think race direction keeps dodging bullets on this one. You came up with a brilliant idea. If you have rain falling on three consecutive corners on a track, red flag it. If it's been declared a dry race and people are out racing on slicks, okay that final turn at the morning is not the fastest corner on the track fair enough but nevertheless you still had four riders or five riders i think it might have been in that final turn it went barreling into the gravel and although motor three bikes are not huge heavy things when one of them hits you traveling at 30 miles an hour it's going to do some damage and so again they were very very lucky that nobody had a broken arm a broken leg a broken something or worse as a result of that and i just think they're playing around not wanting to stop races when all the evidence says stop the race 
I completely agree with you. There is there is not anything else that can be said about that because it's very true. There are always going to be those instances of things that you can't control. I give you years ago at Le Mans in the Moto3 class, way back, I'm, I'm thinking in the 2003, 4, 5 range, somebody popped an engine, had oil going into that the turn after the Dunlap chicane over the hill. Mm-hmm. And what was it, 7, 8, 9, 10 riders? And I mean, I'm talking barrel rolling motorcycles and end of end style stuff went through the gravel trap. I mean, the half the field was gone. Right. So you're never going to be able to, to get that out of it. I think we all realize that motorcycle racing is dangerous. I think we all agree that we're doing something that we can result in some severe injury. However, this is lunacy when you have all this time with rain coming down and you as the, as the race direction, don't put some kind of a rule in place to stop it when these things happen. Again, this is the smallest class. This is the guys who are teenagers predominantly. There are the exceptions. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're going to want to stop? Nope. No. There's no concept of injury or death at that age. I know no. I did it completely 100% would do anything on a motorcycle because I believed in my own ability, right? To a stupid level. And I also believed I couldn't die. Yeah. I don't, you know, you age tempers you kids temper you <laughs> at the most elementary level though jim good organizations have the right people in the right positions doing the right jobs you know the riders are not race direction mm-hmm. race direction and race direction the riders are there to ride so that's what they do you could see spots of rain on the camera at the south side of the circuit and then the crash happened on the other side of the circuit with modern comms from marshalling posts back to race direction, so there's plenty of time to establish that it was raining and they got the quick start procedure you know they cut the number of laps down anyway they did that in the race that we're talking about and they have the ability to do that to save time so that the tv schedule isn't too badly affected and so on so there's just no reason not to do it and i just think it's almost borderline negligence not to stop the race in that situation so anyway ran this this particular rant over although there's another one coming <laughs> warning incoming rant number two uh, a little bit later on which is another safety thing again inevitably but again we don't want to see riders getting hurt because it spoils um, the sport it spoils the next races you know and the sad part is we know that freddie spencer is part of race direction you'd think that freddie would be able to put some sway into this and be able to to understand what's going on and i'm not bl- i'm not blaming anyone here right this is this is a a general overall criticism of what we as fans see and don't want to see hmm. and we're getting it right again modern comms you could have said hey we have heavy rain or enough rain that it's going to be super slick we can see it beating on the track whatever these guys are on slicks you could have easily started throwing yellow flags and red flags these guys could have slowed down with a warning and they could have got back to the pits without too much trouble we could have just waited a few minutes like we did you could have then shorten the distance to two thirds, go back out, quick start procedure and run. But that's what happened. Yeah. Moving on after the crash, we went to the quick restart procedure. It was 60 seconds to get out of the pit lane. You have one mechanic on the grid. You come to that end of that siding lap. You go to your grid spot. Is everything okay? Yeah. Patch on the back. Okay, let's go. One siding lap to get everything warm, get the tires cranked up. And as uh, Simon Crayfar said, he's like, I really hope that these guys realize that the curves are still slick. Because it's that bit of experience talking, you know, and it's one of those things you did. If you looked closely, there were a few of the few of the mechanics were like underneath the ear of several riders. And I'm quite sure those are probably some of the words that were being spoken. If not, they were definitely spoken. I hope they were spoken before they ever got a leg over the bike and took off. But when it went green again, Marrera did exactly what he did the first time and took it to took the lead again. Uh, it looked like a carbon copy start from the first race. It was like almost like they showed you a replay of it. It was so in sync to the first one, yeah. which was amazing, quite honestly. Then it was like, you know, Fagia, Masia, Suzuki, Garcia, and then 
with 10 laps, it was Masia who had gone to the front. Fagia was there. Garcia's there. Zuki's there. Anchu has now made his way to the front. And then you had to tie. And then it becomes these guys are kind of racing for the win podium positions. And it just who happens to be out front at any one given time? And where does everybody else shuffle into? Kind of the typical Moto3 shuffling. At one point, it was a new list with that had, you know, Masia, Garcia, Fagia, Suzuki, Sasaki, Guevara, and then on. You. And at that point, it was with around five laps to go. And then the top three had gotten that small little gap that had started in there where they were starting to pull away. Then Fagia got back in front again. And you really thought with the power of the Honda and how fast he had been all weekend that this was where Fagia had decided to pull the pin. I'm gone. I'm going to throw down the laps a la Casey Stoner style. Catch me if you can, because if you can, great. If you can't, too bad. I'm winning anyway. And you thought, oh, okay, well, it's Fagia. It's Sasaki who had come from really way far back to be there, which was a great ride mm. by Sasaki because his bike had been in the gravel as well. So it was a great effort by the Stelgrado team to put the bike back together again, let alone for Sasaki to race his way to the front because he, you know, three ups to go, he's second. Then there's Masia. Suzuki's there looking good. So the Leopard, two Leopard bikes are there. And then it's Garcia and Guevara. So it's like all KTMs and only the two Hondas. Okay. Yeah. It's a gas gas, whatever. It's still KTM, right, Rich? Yeah, 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 yeah. Then Garcia gets like, uh, makes a mistake at Dunlap because he'd start to lead at going through. He gets past, everybody floods by. It's that last lap is pretty, pretty good racing. It's pretty chaotic. Eventually, it wound up shaking out that they shuffled Fagia to the back. Masia would win it. Sasaki would finish second. Guevara would be third. Fagia doesn't even get a podium. Ouch. It hurt. It hurt. Then it was his teammates, Suzuki, right behind him. Carlos Tatai was sixth. Garcia, Yamanaka. Anchu faded to ninth. Mino never got going. He finished 10th. Helgardo had a crash at the chicane, Dunlop chicane, and he finished 11th. McPhee, back from injury, riding again, came home with a brave 12th. Not too bad. Ricardo Rossi, 13th. Marrera would finish 14th. He had issues, ran off the track, into gravel traps, all that good stuff. And Tobo would get the last point in 15th. Have I missed anything for that, Rich? Or anything you'd like to add, I should ask? Well, only a couple of things, really, which is that after what could only be described as a more than humbling year last year, Jaime Masia certainly now starting to look like a man reborn. A little bit quiet in the first couple of races, although he was a little bit unlucky in a tangle or two. I think he was one of the riders that went down in Argentina, for example, wasn't he? But really strong, aggressive, controlled race from him. And the only other point I was going to make was Parole Sasaki still winless but getting closer I sort of shouted at the screen because he went into the lead just before the two double or the double right to finish the lap and you just knew Masia was going to do a dive bomb but Sasaki left the door wide open and Masia actually had a not an easy overtake there's no such thing in, in Grand Prix motorcycle racing but Sasaki could have made that a lot harder for Masia to get I thought so I thought that was perhaps just a, a slight blot on Sasaki's copybook and it probably did cost him the win which was a shame for him because he's definitely due and or overdue a win but you can't fault Masia it was a great great ride from him and yeah just curious really that Foggia kind of looked as if it was going to be Amanda Leaker at one point he was just going to get out front and go but just couldn't muster the the necessary whatever to make it happen, could he? So it's a bit of a stuttering period of the season for him at the moment, isn't it? And it's, let's talk about the championship positions at the moment, but it's still absolutely all to play for and very tight at the top of the table. Mm-hmm. Garcia will lead with 112 points. Masia's win and the 25 points that come with it leaves him 95 points 
Then Foggia is third, and he's gotten on 95 as well. Again, as you said, this is all to play for. And we've seen Foggia come good in the late runs. He did that with Acosta. He definitely put the hammer down and got it figured out. Just the question is, is the Honda as good a bike as the KTM? And so if you listen to the race, Simon Crayfar has a really great analysis on it about why he thought, was it going to be a Honda track? And it didn't seem like it. And I don't remember all of what he said, but it was really good at the time. So, well, you know, interestingly, on Friday, virtually the top whole of the top 10 was Hondas, I think yeah. it was. And then as the weekend went on, the KTM teams managed to do something so that that was almost reversed by the time the race result happened on Sunday. So yeah, that was kind of curious to see that switch around in terms of the Hondas versus the KTMs. Yeah, and it was in the course of a couple of days. I mean, you could mm. see it maybe race to race, one bike you know better than the other, yeah. given a particular circuit. I'm not betting against Foggia and Magello. There's no way, <laughs> no way I am voting against that. That particular Honda is so bloody quick and a straight line that it's going to be hard to draft him, I would imagine. But certainly the, the, the big strength that they talk about with the KTMs and gas gases, as we say, is that they're so good and stable on the brakes, which is an area that the Honda is not so good at. So you're right, Jim. I mean, it will vary from track to track in terms of what the track layout is in terms of which bike's stronger. But Garcia, I mean, although he didn't have a great sort of finish to that race, he kind of almost outperformed himself a little bit uh, and just right at the end there. You hit the nail on the head a few races ago when we were talking about, I think it might have been Kota, which you said, you, you know, you watch the first couple of laps, go off, make a cup of tea and come back for the last two laps because that's where everything everything happens in the middle part they duff each other up and one or two people drop out but by and large the whole moto three weekend is about the last lap isn't it so and this was no different it was not any different to finish off the top 10 in points um fourth was is Guevara and he's on 89 so he hasn't lost contact in this at all yet Anchu is on 70 points and I think he is anybody who's going to win this world championship is in this top six because you get to Mino in seventh Mino only has 58 points that's I don't see anyone coming from farther back stranger things have happened early days but I'm those top six your world champions coming out of those out of that top six yeah did you mention Sasaki in fifth well he's on 75 points so I mean he's the 37 points behind but that's right. you know that's still doable over, over the doable. length of this season and he's coming on stronger and stronger mm-hmm. and i think if he's one of those riders a bit like dennis Andre, if he could get one win under his belt then it could be a floodgates open kind of deal yeah easily could run three or four races off and, and get in yeah. there and with the form of everybody else as being up and down like we've seen so far this year it's not inconceivable definitely yep uh tai tai is eighth suzuki ninth Toba 10th, and that's your top 10 in points. Moto 2. So qualifying for Moto 2 was we had Roberts in the first qualifying session. He was there with Aldegar, Rodrigo, and this is the big outlier here, Vietti. Man, Vietti could not put anything together in qualifying. Now, we also found out that Fanati has been replaced by Alonzo Lopez and the team on the Bosco Scorer ride, so who knows where Fanati's ever going to make it back again. Is he going to go back to Moto3? I don't think so. Is he going to go to World Superbikes? Possibly, but I'm five foot eight, and Fanati's smaller than I am. So, <laughs> I mean, not that he can't ride a World Superbike, but you got to think that that's going to be harder to I do. I think he'll probably join his mate Lorenzo Baldazzari in World Super Sport if he's going to land anywhere, hmm, this, you, you know, uh, and this season probably, you know, because there's quite often replacement rides that come up in that paddock. So like you, Jim, I think his time in the Grand Prix paddock's probably 
pretty much done because I don't know how old Fanati is, but he probably isn't too far off nudging the age limit in Moto3 anyway if he was to try and drop back to that class. So I think probably at this point he's better looking to a different paddock altogether. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, he could show up and brace super bikes or something like that too. It's, it's, he might join Petrucci here in America. We, you do not know. Stranger things have uh, happened. Stranger yeah. things have, things, stranger things have truly happened. Vietti actually could not go any better than fifth. He just, he kept trying. He would, the first sector he was brilliant in, and then he would lose it all in the, in the final sector. And he would be just short of, of getting there. When we got to Moto2, uh, we had a girl who had a low side at turn six. Lowe's had a high side in there, which would eventually lead Lowe's not being declared fit for the race. I'm trying to come up with who actually was on the pole for Moto2. But it was your favorite Spanish rider who's yet to turned up properly this year. But Oh, that's right. Started to show some signs. (laughs) Pedro Acosta was fast, very fast. It was continuously fast the whole time to be on pole. His teammate, Fernandez, would be second. And then your regular cast of characters filling in out of there. So we would move into our race. And we had no lows because, again, denoted as being undeclared unfit because of the hard high side that he actually had. When it took off in the race, Acosta... Whole shot got there. Fernandez was right there. Then Arenas, who was on the front row, I think, came through as well. Lopez having a good shot. Ramirez, Dixon, Chantra, and Schroeder were all in a nice little gaggle. Antonelli went down at turn six. Then we had Arbolino going down at turn six. Turn six seemed to be the place where everybody was crashing. Outiger would go down, would crash and go down as well. And then it sort of kind of shook out a little bit. And we wound out with Acosta and Fernandez kind of breaking away. And those guys kind of moved as a pair and kind of started to get away from everybody else. It was a good quick battle between Lopez, Canet, Arenas, and suddenly Cambobier had come up from his lowly starting place. I think he was made his way now up to sixth. Agur was nowhere to be found. Dixon had fallen down to 13th. Then Canet and cam got on the move and they started to head up they displaced lopez they they had basically shaken off arenas but they couldn't really do anything about fernandez and acosta by lap six arenas had fallen down at turn seven but he was back up then we go with like 10 laps into the race it's acosta and fernandez and they now have a 5.6 second lead they're flying and this is now the flashes of brilliance that we had seen from pedro acosta to gary's point where had pedro acosta been well now he finally seemed like this is it got it figured out got his act together it's going to work now and we're not going to have a problem we've got this Kenneth bobier they are both there bobier gets up the inside then uh Kenneth would go back up the inside because they just traded it back and forth it was just fantastic then we had vietti who was 19th and vietti runs off at turn eight i mean he's off into the gravel and for whatever reason like again he couldn't he couldn't do anything and you're like what what is wrong with Vietti? this guy was rock solid he's and he's, it's nowhere like he had no speed anywhere and just like what you just think like what's wrong and while you're trying to figure that out all of a sudden acosta's on his ass really discussion point yeah discussion point what happened you know what the kid was making his break he had decided he was going to put the hammer down and get away from his teammate and he will and he was he was he had about a second uh and a couple of tenths on his teammate what do you do you're going downhill and to think it's i think they call that la chapelle yeah and he just tucked the front everybody does it at some point and mm. again i'm believing that his riding style where he was so brilliant on the front end of the KTM Moto3 bike. And as we've said continuously, the Moto3 bike is really good on the brakes, got the stability. He's on a Kalex, which may or may not have great stability on the front, and he just loses it. Down he goes. And then Costa is in the gravel trap. He 
coming down the hill at La Chapelle, loses the front. Everybody does it at some point in their life. And as Simon Crafar pointed out, hey, this is kind of where we expected him to actually be. And it makes you understand really how good Fernandez, Adrian, was on a Moto2 bike last year as a rookie to Raul. do what he did. Raul Fernandez, you've done it Damn. again. I did it all the time, don't I? Sorry, folks. How Raul did on the bike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it does. I thought, was it during the race, Simon Crayfar interviewed, or perhaps immediately after race, Simon Crayfar interviewed Akiayo, who's got to be one of the most chilled out people in the world right now. Yeah. And he was just sort of simply saying, yeah, Pedro's crashing a lot this year, but he's learning. So there's no pressure on him. So He can't go to MotoGP anyway. So no, what's the point? There's There's no rush. Okay, I'll say it. I think Pedro Acosta is going to be KTM's first world champion in a fall on the G- in MotoGP. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, that's how I see it. Yeah. I think they know that they've got that raw, talented kid that they're kind of looking for. It's kind of like having, oh, what position is it in soccer? Striker. You're looking for that striker for your football team. I think KTM's found it with him. Trust me, the other guys that are riding are fantastic, but Acosta's just that something special. Yeah. Uh, let yeah. him... If you let him season, mature, kind of stay in the minors for another year, I guarantee you probably next year he will dominate Moto2. Not to the extent that he did Moto3, but he will rip off four or five wins for sure. Next year is the acid test for him, really, isn't it? If he gets his learning, and he's crashing, yeah, all the frustrations out of his system this year. Mark Marcos did the same thing the first year he was up into Moto2. I mean, Mm -hmm. he might have been a bit better, perhaps, but he did crash a lot. He crashed so hard he knocked his retina free. Exactly. That's where where it all started, wasn't it? Uh, In the battle that he was having with Stefan Bradle that year, I think it was. So um, I think this actually goes back to the email that we were talking about from Gary at the beginning, where he, I didn't really expand too much on what he said about Pedro, but I think it was Gary that pointed out that Pedro's been on the Moto3 bike for years. Mm-hmm. So although it was his rookie season in Moto3 Grand Prix last year, he was very familiar with that kind of a bike. And Moto2 is a fundamentally different machine. And I think, I can't remember who said it, but there was a suggestion that he's up until now, he's been trying to ride the Moto2 bike a little bit like a Moto3 bike in terms of lines and stuff, whereas he needs to start doing the sort of the V corner kind of technique a little bit more. Because um, all of his crashes have been sort of front-enders. He hasn't been high-siding himself off as a general rule, not in dry conditions anyway. So I think he's just going through that learning process. Process, isn't he but I one of my talking points for the race I, we haven't quite finished the race coverage talk yet but was you know has Le Mans demonstrated that Pedro Costa has turned the corner yeah he fell off in the race but you can let him off that one he was leading that's the important part of that equation and he had been fast in every session and he was on pole that to me suggests something has shifted all of a sudden in terms of his learning process so we'll find out in a you know in a week and a half won't we at Mugello yeah. I think it's also good that it happened at Le Mans. Despite what you think of Le Mans, and you know, some people, if you just look at it on a track map, you do not think it's that technical of a racetrack. You don't. It just, okay, go through here, chicane, over the hill, down, back up, U-turn, come back, two turns, go back, chicane, straight, chicane, two turns, and we're back again. It's a very technical racetrack. It's yeah. very front end dominant. It's you've got to have a great setup on the motorcycle to get the traction events, to be able to have braking stability. It is a good test of a motorcycle chassis and how you have it set up. So for Acosta to work well there encourages me that as he moves towards these other races, that he will be good there as well. And, you know, start to be where he's again, I think we've kind of said this before Moto three, you learn how to set up a motorcycle Moto two, you, you hone your race craft in, in Moto GP, you just become a champion. And without sort of forgetting too much detail about the races that we've already had this season, you know, race one was at night on a sandy or dusty track. Then you had Mandalika, which was monsoonal almost at times, you know, he hasn't really had inverted commas, sort of typical warm, sunny, hot races. So 
so far this year. So he might have been struggling just to find what the base setting is and the base kind of riding technique to employ. Because I mean, Portimao was was it windy or chilly? I think it was, or the weather was a bit on off. It was was unseasonably cool. You know, we had that rain shower, etc., etc. So he hasn't really, in fairness to Pedro Acosta, he's not really had a very consistent set of races at at which to start to make incremental steps. Because that's what it's all about, right? Isn't it? It's it's kind of figuring this out and then moving forward, getting a bit faster again. And as you say, Jim, if you're going to have a front end crash, you're going to have it at Le Mans because it's just lots of very, very sort of fast straights or pretty fast straights with tight corners at the end of them. So he did pretty well not to crash. I don't think he crashed in the free practices. Again, I might be wrong. I don't remember him doing it. If he did, it would have been only one tip off, but I don't think he did. So to have only crashed once in the weekend, okay, it was in the race and it was from the lead. So on paper, that looks bad, but I'm pretty sure him and the team will be pretty chuffed with the performance overall for the weekend. Mm, yep. After Acosta falls off, it basically Fernandez runs away with this. There was no one in their league. They were five seconds ahead at this point, and it was just a matter of could he put the laps in and maintain concentration and not lose the front, and Fernandez doesn't. Now, this second, third, fourth place race becomes interesting because Chantra decides to show up, and he just start, puts down the laps on this Indometsu bike, and it's like, ooh, all of a sudden, Chantra's by Cam, and then Cam got back by, then Chantra goes back by again, then Chantra goes after Canet, stands him up, then Bobier goes by too, and it's Canet's third, next lap he's second, Bobier's second, next lap he's third, and Chantra's second, and it just goes round and round and round until eventually, as you get down to the end of it, Cam, I think, had maybe a little less left in the tank, uh, maybe didn't conserve his tire as well. Canet would go on to finish second to Fernandez, a distant second. They were over three seconds, three and a half seconds behind. Chantra would finish out on the podium, showing that his one-trick Mandalika deal maybe wasn't an outlier. It might really be that he does have that kind of speed and that kind of pace. And what, this is Chantra's third year i think in moto two yeah something it's close Mm. i'm close i know that so and then bobier gets his best ever finish he gets a fourth better than the fifth he had at porto mayo and bobier was near the front which again this bodes well for the american he was there at the front doing his thing a shout out to ayagura because ayagura was eighth and he eventually was way back made his way to eighth by half distance and did get to fifth now he was some distance behind bobier there was no chance that ogura was going to catch the fight for the final podium positions and he didn't i think he was roughly 11 odd seconds behind which was a mile then schroeder joe roberts vietti now vietti has raced up from almost dead last in a trip to the gravel trap setting fast laps the entire time he couldn't do it so what magic happened to his motorcycle rich when you run off the track and you put in the gravel trap how does your bike come out and go faster uh you would imagine that the team were asking themselves the same question and probably asking him the same question as well when he got back into the box. I mean, they would have been pleased because he ground out yet another pretty reasonable result after a, a difficult weekend. But unless he just sort of suddenly clicked in and got, got his, you know, the, the famous rhythm, uh, which is pretty hard to get at a place like Le Mans for the reason you just mentioned, Jim. It's very technical. It's very stop-start. So if you're having troubles, it's probably going to disrupt your rhythm for several laps at a time. And maybe he just then started to, as the fuel load went down perhaps the track started to rubber in a little bit you just don't know do you but for him to suddenly be setting fastest laps it's like what <laughs> where did that come from i know i'm sure that the entire team was doing the same thing to him i you know i'm going to kind of put it down to that thing like you're mad at yourself because you made a mistake so you put the bit between your teeth and suddenly now you can find what you couldn't find before that's yeah. the weird thing about racing motorcycles it's and it was one of the things that i did not do well 
it, regardless of whether it was dirt track or whether it was club racing, I could never really qualify well. I couldn't get the bit between my teeth to go fast, but put me in a race condition and with people around me, I could go fast. So I understand where he is sort of mentally. Um, but you know, this is a whole nother level. This isn't me toddling around as a weekend warrior. <laughs> this is your <laughs> profession. That's kind of what Jack Miller punches himself up. And I think what Juan Mir does that too. Yeah. Punches something or punches himself or whatever, slaps his chest. And you know, they kind of that's their motivation. It's them getting mad at themselves, if you will. Right? The thing about Vietti though is that he's had a couple of weekends where he's been stellar, he's been brilliantly good. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. he's had you know if you look at Portimao okay he was pretty lucky there because he was quite far back but missed that whole melee when all the riders went down in the the wet incident and you know he's just grinding out results and you have to do that in a championship like Moto2 so you know the proof's in the pudding in terms of the championship table so on paper eighth looks a bit disappointing but compared to where he was early in that race you know eighth is a bloody brilliant result for him really it is I think he got help by the fact that Iagura didn't finish on the podium if Iagura had finished on the podium this would be a different championship chase and speaking of which let's talk about where everybody is in this championship chase Vitti still leads in the world championship he's on 108 points Iagura is now on 92 so that puts him 16 points behind that's nothing folks that's not with all the races we have left Kinnett is on 89 then Arbolino is on 70 so Arbolino's title chase really got dealt a blow by falling off here at the Mons again all it takes is one person to make one mistake and this all flip-flops back around again but fifth is Fernandez having gained a lot by getting those 25 points Joe Roberts sixth Chantra seventh Schroeder eighth Navarro ninth and tenth Bo Ben Schneider poor Sam Lowe's having not started the race winds up being 11th in the championship I do do not know what to think about Sam. Give us the British side of it because I am so disappointed that, you know, these things are just, seems like Sam is just being followed by that dark cloud of bad luck. Well, it's game over for Lowe's and Dixon in terms of the championship this year. I mean, I've got the race itself was not a scintillating affair to sit down and watch. So I've just really got a few bullet points I wanted to go through. It's going to be a long show, folks. I apologise for that, but we, we missed Jim last week with a 28-minute show, so we're going to <laughs> going to pay it back and some this week. But, well, the first thing I wanted to get onto was a bit of a rant, and it does concern Lowe's, and it's to do with the fact that he didn't start the race or the circumstances under which he didn't start the race. So, as you say, Jim, in Q2, he had a pretty nasty high side and came down pretty hard on his head, was a bit wonky, and kind of made a decision he'd see how he felt Sunday morning now as I understand what happened with the way events unfolded he went for a medical check and was past fit to ride in the warm-up took part in the warm-up after which he and his team but let's say Sam Lowe's personally withdrew from the race because I read a statement from him that said that he was feeling dizzy on the bike and he was having trouble with his distance perception so he withdrew himself from the race on the grounds that he didn't feel he would be safe and he wouldn't be safe in relation to his competitors on track. So, you know, Sam Lowe's a very experienced rider, one of the top riders in the paddock, despite his troubles this year. And he's had quite a bit of bad luck. He's been taken out in a couple of races, for example. But again, like we were talking about with the Moto3 guys earlier on, you know, a lower down the grid team that needs the points, needs the money, might not make a decision like that, or a rider might not feel that they're in a position career-wise to make a decision like that. So my question is, how did he get through the medical and get past fit to ride when he was concussed? Good question. I don't know if you saw it, Jim, certain people on Twitter will have seen that I put out a bit of a stingy comment on this, and I try not to be too snarky on Twitter because you just get enveloped in a lot of negativity if you're not careful, but I think it was a, a genuine question, which is that having been singing the praises of the concussion protocol, 
goals in MotoGP over a couple of incidents in recent rounds. That's suddenly a big black mark again, as far as I'm concerned, the fact that he made it through that medical, if that's exactly what happened, and I believe it was, and then basically on the bike, couldn't see where he was going in, you know, to paraphrase it down. That's not really very good. And so I put a comment out on Twitter and ex-show host Andy Course came back with a very interesting point. And I think it's been mentioned before, but it bears repetition, which is that, you know, we can have little cameras sewn into the leathers on people's shoulder. You know, we've got Mm -hmm. airbags with flashy lights to say when they're primed and so on nowadays why on earth can't there be an accelerometer or some sort of a g impact recorder inside these crash helmets that you know these racers have to wear you know these top top level crash helmets let's say which will show with a, an led light if a certain g impact has been reached and that then dictates whether or not you're deemed fit to go out in the next session i mean it's, a, it's a, an open question that goes out to the listeners and people feel free to comment and fun enough um we just had to take a little pause there although hopefully it'll be seamless in the end it but and I was just looking on Twitter again and somebody was singing the praises of a helmet brand and I must admit I've not heard of these before called 6D helmets and they have a very special impact absorbing material in them and it's modular so if certain parts of the crash helmet hmm. are, are hit you can take them out and replace them that's interesting so it might be interesting to reach out to those guys and try yeah. and understand a bit more about that in the context of this discussion because we keep having this discussion we do and you know we shouldn't arguably shouldn't be having it it relates to alex rins as well as we'll come on to shortly but the low situation yeah was another interesting example of a rider getting past fit to race with a head injury and in this case thankfully that particular rider making a very sensible decision to sit it out so two things for me from my side one we don't know what metrics MotoGP uses to determine concussion protocol. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who knows? I would think, and I don't know this, but I might have to ask the doctor or wife for the next show to be sure. I would think it'd be hard to be able to do like a distance depth thing without a true, like the, the ocular idea. What am I trying to say? The ocular headgear that you use when you go to see gla- to get glasses where they can change the perception of how far you are. So a concussion protocol, it could be simple. Could you tell me what day it is? Can you tell me how old you are? Can you tell me what day you were born? What day did you get married? Those kind of things. Yeah. Okay. Which is more of a memory test than it is really your, your cognitive state. The second part of that to me is, okay, yeah, we can put these cameras in here. And, and again, I've got to rant about the cameras because I want more of them um, mm. from MotoGP. Uh, but if you can do all that, you should be able to put an accelerometer of some type in a helmet and determine how many G of impact that that person's head has had. The downfall is, is again, that concussions are not a black and white area. If let's just make up a number here. If we say, again, made up numbers, that a 3G impact to someone's head is disqualification from a race, that may not be the case. I may be able to withstand 4G because my head's thicker or whatever than what you can. You might be as bad off at 2G impact as I would be at a 6G impact or whatever. You you see what I'm, Mm. hopefully you're trying to see what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So concussions are affected by everybody because everybody's brain is different and everybody's body is different. I mean, we use old money here. 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit is considered to be the average body temperature. If you take your temperature every day and you chart it, you are not 98.6 degrees. Your body is different. It depends on what's going on with you. So to have a finite absolute, mm, you go over this many G's, well, sounds really good in theory and it's something you can put in a rule book. It's definitely not something because all of this is so subjective that I don't know that we could actually do it. There's not really a metric. I mean, even Colin Overton said we had like his collarbone plated or whatever. He said, 
well, they made me do like 25 push-ups, which like I can get through the pain on that. I don't know, for example, Jim, if you look at the crash that Lowe's had on Saturday afternoon where, you know, it was a typical high to flicked him up and he came down pretty much vertical and landed on his head. Now, I don't know what that would be in terms of a G impact, but perhaps the more salient one to talk about in a little while, or let's talk about it now, would be the Alex Rins crash because Mm -hmm. in the race where he, again, spoiler alert, but everybody knows because they watched the race, lost the rear going into the fast turn one, went through the gravel, actually, as I understand it, decided to dump the bike because he was worried he was going to come flying across the track and take out one of the KTMs, which I think was behind him at the time. So he kind of dropped the bike on purpose. But in doing so, he whacked his head on the ground like really really hard to the extent that I was shocked that he got up so quickly now perhaps that's adrenaline but in that scenario you could say well if his head had been measured at hitting the tarmac at say I don't know 20 G let's say let's make a number up but you could put a line in the sand that says you know it's, it, if it's a big number like that then you, you just have to stop yes you could argue that a typical accident might be 3 G but some people could take 4 or 5 without it really affecting them too badly but you will reach a certain point at which the severity of an accident is high enough that you really ought to be going straight to medical anyway not jumping back on the bike and rejoining the race which is what Rins did now I don't know he pulled out about three laps later and I don't know if it was because the bike was damaged or whether he was starting to feel the effects of that fall I would suspect it was the latter of those two things but I don't know but he went down hard and I watched him get back on the bike and thought I'm not sure that's really a very good idea It's, it's obviously it's a very contentious issue this and I just again it, we keep sort of seeing these instances and it seems to be happening more and more lately perhaps just because it's just something that's becoming more and more important in all sorts of different sports but we do seem to be lagging behind making a few steps forward and then taking a number of steps backwards on it so throw it out to the listeners and see what people have to say I'm sure it'll, we'll get some feedback on that and uh, we can pick it up on another show I'll make sure to ask my wife and see what she says I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about what I said yeah, it'll be interesting, very yeah. close but it's going to be interesting she says so we'll, we'll do something with that mm. let's actually talk about the motor GP race, but we have to talk about qualifying first. And here comes my rant. For me, living in the US where I do, qualifying on Saturdays happens at a very awkward time. It's a mid-morning kind of event for me. Mm-hmm. So I generally devoid myself of the internet or any other form of communication that could potentially give me a result that I don't want to know. And I wind up watching the races on the spoiler-free feed that happens on the uh, MotoGP app. For some reason, there is no MotoGP QP1 in that list. Why? <laughs> I saw you tweet about that. Like, you know, where, where is it? Is it? <laughs> where is it, people? It's not there. Because I have struggled at times because I use different platforms to stream from. I've done it from my computer. I do it from a Roku unit. I do it from an Apple TV. All those are different in how they refresh themselves to get the latest feed out of it so i went through everything that i know to refresh all these different things and still wasn't there hence my tweet where is this because Mm. i want to know what happened yes i know that jorge martin and juan mir went through but i don't know how they went through or whatever else went in there it's like how could you not have that data why is it not there (laughs) you have everything else but you don't have that is it still not there i wonder as far as i know i looked this morning and it's still not there Oh, that's just a terrible oversight, maybe, but... Uh, something happened. I'll, I'll tell you what, then, Jim, well, just whilst we're on this, and uh, accepting that this is going to be a three-hour show and a hell of an edit, is it just me, or when I put the... Because I tend to watch it on my TV, but using the Dawner app. Uh-huh. And the place you yeah, want to get to, is, yeah. as you say, is the spoiler-free area, so you don't get... To, but first of all, you have to go through the home screen where all the new stuff is up. So do you find yourself kind of like covering over the screen with your hand and peeping to the left of the screen? Ironically, no. Because oh. if you use, if you have an Apple TV, the logic of it stays on spoiler free. 
Ah, uh, uh, see, mine doesn't do that just because I just watch it through my Samsung TV and I've got right. an Amazon Cube thing which has the app on it. Right. But I have to go through. Well, please, anybody that's listening to this, then you're an idiot. You don't have to do that. Please, happy to be called an idiot if it tells me how to avoid having to go through the home screen where you might see something by accident because I'm one of these people like you Jim I don't want to know what's happened the worst thing in the world that can happen is for somebody to tell me the result of a sporting event before I've had a chance to watch it that just yes. really really ticks me off so yeah the Dawner app doesn't help in regards to that anyway and I've got one more thing to come to in a moment about well, can, I, can I interject you my ADSC first. first and then you yeah. okay so if anybody knows how to not have that happen on a Roku unit I will gladly accept that advice because if I watch on the Dorna app because a lot of times I don't get to watch all the racing when it happens live in the morning i'll watch it after i eat lunch or something on sunday after we, we come home from church or wherever we are soccer games whatever i'll watch it upstairs in our bedroom with a roku unit now that goes to the home screen every single time and i cannot get it and i am like you i'm standing around the corner with one eye open trying to <laughs> click down two buttons to get to the spoiler free section Peeping so if anyone fingers. knows how yeah. to make this work on a roku unit where i can get it to stick at the spoiler free site please let me know <laughs> and if anybody knows how to fix rich's game uh, amazon cube app please let him know because we really would love to know all in any help except because this is again this is what you get guys i'm gone for two weeks we're just gonna let it all hang out here for a great three-hour show this possibly won't be a problem from next season but unless my memory is failing me there are 24 bikes typically that start the race okay mm-hmm. yeah i think so why the hell with the timing tower that they show pretty much all race long on the left hand side of the screen why does it only go down to position 22 there's room at the bottom to have position 23 and 24 and yet they never show those positions. Why? I know nobody, perhaps you might say, well, no, who cares who's last? But I care. I want to know which one it is. Okay, I want to know, is it Defizioso or is it Binder? Because that's typically what it'll be this year, not being unkind. But but they only go down to that timing tower is the top 22 positions. Why isn't it 24? There are 24 bikes out there and there is room on the screen to fit them on. I don't get it. Okay, let's just rant this one. If I look at the top of the screen on the, on the timing pylon, it's laps counting down. Lower right-hand corner of the screen is laps counting up. Up, yeah. <laughs> okay, we got to stop, man. <laughs> no, I got one more. I got one more because we're here. I'm going to go here too. You obviously watch Formula One like I do, okay? I'm mm-hmm. now privileged because I get the Sky broadcast feed. So I get to see Martin Brundle now, the whole Sky team. One of the things that I think that they do in Formula One that is brilliant is they actually have in the lower part of the screen, turn whatever. They tell you what turn the cars are in. MotoGP, please put what turn the bikes are in because mm. I think that is absolutely crucial stuff because I can't tell you the number of times I'm sitting there waiting to figure out what turn it is so I can write down that so-and-so fell at turn two or four or six or eight or whatever it is. Now we're done. <laughs> okay, that's it for now. Yeah, we are available for consultancy services on television, broadcast, meet, and social media. Uh, Dorna, should you wish to employ us? Oh. Anyway, Martin and Mir go through in the first session. There's the Nowheresville that is KTM and uh, the hot and cold that is Alex Marquez, whatever. There's, we know all about that. We go into the to the second qualifying session to see what's going to happen. You wound up with Quattraro and Benyaya. They were just trading fastest laps. If Quattraro went fast, Benyaya just went faster. And then Quattraro would just go faster than Benyaya. And it just was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. At the very, very end, out of nowhere, Alaysh just threw in a lap to get himself at near or around pole position. And he was there for at least a little bit of time. 
And then it kind of went stir crazy fast. It just, who knew what was what, but then it was Quattraro and then Benyaya went faster and you're thinking, okay, that's there. And what happens going on? I was like, whoa, Miller jumps in as well. And eventually it settled out to where it was Benyaya, Miller, Aspargaro, Aleish, that is. Then Quattraro, Bastianini, Zarco, Mir, Renz, Martin, Marquez would start 10th. And that was because in FP4, Marquez ruined a motorcycle. So we only had one bike to qualify on. And unfortunately, we're seeing sort of the same thing out of Marquez that we saw a lot the year before. He kind of needs somebody to tow him around sometimes. I was going to bring this up. Is it getting a bit embarrassing now? Is it yes. becoming a, a bit, uh, what's the, I'm trying to think of the right word. It's, I mean, it's not disrespectful. I mean, Mark is having to do it, but it just doesn't quite sit right with me that he can only get a fast lap now by really just going out and turn behind somebody. Wow. I'm big Marquez fan. You know this, guys. Yeah, me too. But, me, me too. But, but I, I am at a point now with this that, dude, if you can't turn that lap time on your own, then you need to stop. Yeah. That's where I am. Right, wrong, indifferent doesn't matter that's just my feel personally if you can't do it because your body can't do it anymore then stop you have nothing left to prove you're an eight times world champion going to go down in history you, you look you and speaking of news we didn't talk about this you get your you get your number retired just like rossi's going to get his number retired and for god's sakes if anybody's number deserved to be retired it'd be rossi's and i can come up with a handful of people who shouldn't have their number retired and we could rant that on a whole nother yeah, we better save that one because I don't. I don't agree Gosh, with this. This is going to be really bad, guys. Sorry, we're off on <laughs> tangents in just every which way, but it's what makes the show fun, right? It's why we listen. Anyhow, after qualifying, we get to the race, and as it takes off, we wind up with Zarco getting a penalty. So he started with three grid spots lower down because he was parked in one of the corners while people were still on a hot lap. So he impeded people while Hold they the were on the Yeah, in the first chicane. Yeah. Yep. So you have that. Miller got a whole shot. Quattraro dropped down to eighth. Again, Quattraro had a decent launch. However, when he went to second gear on board, that bike bogged. Now, I don't know if that was Quattraro shifting too quick. I don't know if that's like an electronic thing and it's set to turn at a certain time when there's a certain amount of RPM to maybe help to prevent some wheel spin, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. But it was definitely bike bogged and everybody went on by and you're thinking, that's not good for Quattraro. He needs to be in the first couple of positions, maybe in the top three. And he, and, and he must quickly get by everybody who is in front of him to prevent him from going even further backwards. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, yeah. he wind up, he did not have that. Then we get to the Renz crash, which was a scary crash. If Renz had decided to actually lay the bike down, down beforehand, he should have been thinking about it in the gravel trap much sooner than he did. He didn't really start, to, in my mind, not to think about it until he was on the way out of the gravel trap and realizing, crap, I'm going really fast and there's guys that are going to be coming. And then he wound up crashing as he did. And we've already had that discussion. I have nothing to add about that. We're already through it. But from that point, it was Benyaya who gets by Miller. And then it's Bastianini. It's Aleish. It's Quattraro. And pretty much things kind of stay that way for quite a few laps until there's 12 laps into the race. Bastianini finally gets by Miller. And that was becoming important because everybody else, Miller and Benyaya were starting, or sorry, Benyaya was starting to get away. So Bastianini needed to get going if he was going to do anything about it, because if he didn't, he was going to be gone. So that move was a necessary move. Mir went down at turn 14. He tucked the front. A lot of people were having trouble with the final two turns on that. At 17 laps to go, Mark Zarco had finally gotten past Marquez. I mean, again, this is not the greatest of all the MotoGP races that you're ever <laughs> going to see. But what happened was that Martin would crash as well. And then Bastianini got by Benyaya. Then Benyaya went right back again. And this is the critical point of the race. We were, we were 27 laps into it. And I think it's a 
28 or, or 21 laps in of a 27 lap race. Basically, got to call it like I see it, Benyaya cracked under the pressure that Bastianini was putting on him and Benyaya fell off at turn 14. Uh, he simply cracked. There's yeah. no other way to look at that other than that was a writer error mistake. He put him down, which allowed Bastianini to go win the race. It allowed Jack to finish second on the podium. Aleish with another great ride on that Aprilia to finish third on the podium. I mean, that's, is that three podiums on the trot for Aleish? I think that's the first time he's ever done it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And then Quattro finished a distant fourth. He was there with Aleish. He was gaining on him, but Aleish had him covered, and it wasn't really going to happen. I think Quattro was in that same mode. The front tires are overheated. I can't get in front of anybody, and I'm working around to it. And there's a lot to be said about that, because if you look at Quattro's positions, as they look like a ping-pong ball bouncing up and down on a table. The down ones are ones where he didn't qualify well and didn't get to the front very quick. The ones where he's first, second, he has qualified well, gotten to the front quickly, and it's stayed there yeah so a lot going on there uh zarco would be fifth marquez would finish sixth and then nakagami with a good ride on the lcr honda to be ninth although i do think nakagami's days are numbered because there is another japanese kid coming along i'll let you guys figure that one out because it's pretty obvious bender being a sunday man he showed up again <laughs> from a very lowly position to get eighth and of course he's aided by the attrition let's kind of tether that but uh, a notable finish for bender because he was missing a wing right from the first lap yes. And that would not have been an easy bike to ride with masses of downforce on one side and none on the other. I will agree with you. To finish out the top 10, Luca Marini and then Maverick Vinales. So Bastianini, shout out to Bastianini. Bastianini won the first race in the desert. I think we all kind of went, hmm, okay, sure. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Yeah. You have the 2021 Ducati, which I think everyone would agree it was a fantastic motorcycle. And you had a setup to put on it. I'm sure there were some cliff notes that were kind of handed to the Grissini team on how to make that bike work. Mm. And they won a race. Okay. But then Bastianini said something after that race that stuck with me. I have a motorcycle I can win the world championship with. Okay. That's some big talk from a guy who <laughs> just won his first MotoGP race. Okay. And on a team that's a satellite team, which we know how difficult it is to beat the factory, even if you are given good equipment. And now he's won at Coda. And now he's won at Le Mans. Those are three very different tracks that he has won on in three very different ways. He was very quick in Qatar and simply rode off from everybody, won the race. His code of victory came from third, pressuring people, and essentially not pressuring people, but rode through the pack to win the race. And then he came here and forced Benyaya, who I think we all rate as a very competent rider, and he was the previous winner at Jerez, and forced him into an error and won the race. I'm beginning to believe what Bastianini is selling way back at Qatar, that he could win this championship. Where do we start now then, Jim? Okay. <laughs> Pretty boring race, really. Uh, so not a great race, but a very significant outcome, I think is how I would headline okay. this one. I like that. And, and let's not forget, I mean, Bastianini is a Moto2 world champion. So, I mean, this guy's mm. got pedigree. We tend to sort of forget that a little bit. And he had a brilliant yeah. first year on a 2019 Ducati. And towards the end of last season, he was podiuming pretty regularly, if you recall. Or certainly he was at the top end of the top 10 anyway. So it shouldn't necessarily come as a, huge surprise but i was particularly surprised about his race on sunday simply because he'd been on the deck three times over the weekend did not appear to be having a great time but then suddenly pulled a result on race day that i don't think anybody particularly saw coming now we know we've discussed it on past shows that he does not consume the rear tire he's quite light and he's very economical in his style so he's not really so much of an elbow down kind of a guy because he's a he's a pretty short little guy as well so he 
sort of has that in his favour, I suppose, in some regards. But unlike the last sort of notable, very, very short rider, Danny Pedrosa, Danny was very sort of slight in build, whereas Bastianini is quite a stocky, strong looking guy. So he can muscle the bike, but he doesn't need to sort of clamber all over it. So his rear tyre management is absolutely, you know, devastatingly good. And as you say, he got off after Banyaya, having disposed of Miller. Yeah, and uh, is it cr- cruel to say that Banyai cracked? I mean, I don't know. He made a mistake down at, um, I can never remember the name of the turn, that awkward sort of double apex corner sort of halfway through the lap. So, okay, he would have got a bit of dirt and dust on his tyres and stuff, but he knew he would have lost time to Bastianini. And then 30 seconds later, he bins it at the final turn. So I think he knows Bastianini's on his way into that team now because over the course of the weekend, Banyai was saying, oh, I want Miller to stay. You know, he and I get on well. I think Banyai knows he's got Miller covered over the course of a season. Whereas Bastianini is like a little sort of pit bull terrier, isn't he? And I think he will cause Banyar all sorts of trouble in that team if he does arrive in the works Ducati squad. I would put reasonable money on the fact that he will on the back of Sunday in particular. Uh, if he wins the next race in Mugello on a Ducati at home in Ducati's backyard, they'll be handing him the contract on the Monday morning, I expect. That would be my take on it. But the war of words between him and Banyar post-race sort of started to kick off. And Bastianini wasn't holding back in sort of, not gloating, probably the wrong word, but pointing out that he forced Banyar into a mistake. So getting spicy with regards to the Ducati situation at the moment. We must talk about some of the other teams as well in terms of their relative position in this championship because I think we've, we've got enough of the season under our belt now to be able to just say a few sort of soundbitey things but Ducati yeah starting to the armada is starting to emerge it's just perhaps not the boats at the front that we were expecting agreed agreed I think I think Suzuki has overachieved with Rins because of where they are let's look at the championship let's let's think about this order of the championship Quattro is on top at 102 Alicia Sparger is second at 98 overachievers Aprilia they I mean Let's face it, that's overachieving. Mm. You're three points out of leading the world championship. One bad race by Quattro one good race by you, and you're going to be four or five points ahead. Yeah. Again, the Armada has arrived. It's Ducati, Ducati, Ducati. Overachievement by Renz, I think, to be where he is. Underachievement by KTM, and woeful underachievement by Marquez and Honda. Now, their development was hampered by Marquez not being able to ride over that. But I don't think we thought it was going to be like this. I don't think we thought Quattro would be as close to the front as he is. I think we all thought it was going to be Ducati one, two, three we thought ktm would be farther up the grid and i don't know if we really knew what to do about honda because we didn't know what was going to happen because marquez hadn't tested the bike mm. is that bike an improvement oh don't know goes to show how suspicious you must be about testing doesn't it because in mm-hmm. the pre-season we were all people were raving about that bike and polis barrow was saying i can win the championship on this bike look at them now i mean pooch coming out in the press over the last day or so saying you know this year is effectively a write-off for them it's a development year you can't put ever put it past Marquez not to win at say the Saxon ring this year or something like that but you know all four riders are struggling big time and as I say we have the unedifying sight of Mark Marquez looking for toes all the time uh, through practice and qualifying now and I mean I think it was I, I won't invite too much negativity when I say what I'm about to say it isn't me that's saying this but on the race.com podcast that I was listening to earlier on again it might have been Simon or one of the other guys on there basically saying that Marquez is actually pretty slow this year you know just can't find his way around the bike yeah he's coming back from injury but you know he's only just well he was the 
top Honda in the race, but Nakagami was pretty close behind him. Mm-hmm. And Alex Marquez and Paul Espargaro seem to be absolutely lost, don't they? So Honda, it's a bit of a woeful looking situation for them. Yeah, they'll win a race or two, I expect, uh, with Marquez, but it looks pretty rough going for them. And the, other, the only other one I really wanted to point out really was Yamaha must be so desperate to get Fabio's signature on a new contract. Because yeah. if they didn't have him... if you are nowhere. They were they occupied the last three places. Morbidelli, 15th. Okay, he scored a point, but that was again because a lot of people fell off. Davizioso, then Binder. I mean, yep. shocking. Yes. Really shocking. I mean, if they didn't have Quattro on the bike, goodness only knows where they would be. And they are, to make matters even worse for them, they are, if you, if the press reports are to be believed, they are very seriously facing the prospect of losing RNF as a satellite squad because it looks like that could be Aprilia next year. Because obviously everybody that can wants to get their hands on that. <laughs> Pretty a MotoGP bike, so uh, it's, uh, yeah. You can't Hollywood script times because if no. you would have said that everybody would want to have an affiliate, we would laugh at you and move on. Yeah, and Alicia Spargo is a genuine title contender, Jim. Yes, a genuine title contender because he's not falling off anymore. The funny part was I said Aprilia was real. I said at the beginning of the year it was real. I just didn't think it was this real. I thought wins, a win, wins, maybe podiums, yes, contention, no, but they are. Mm. They're there. I think that's where we should leave it. I think we're. I think that's it. I think this is a good place to wrap it all up. Be where it is. Again, guys, questions, comments, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. We love it all. Motopod at motopodcast.com. You can email us there if you want to contact me or Rich via social media. I am at motorgv Instagram and Twitter. Rich, you are Richard Jowett at Instagram and Twitter as well. Same for both. Yeah. Same for both. It's a long show, guys. Sorry about that. Um, look, for, Looking forward to the next show. We've got some good interviews coming that we're going to take care of and get that out. So hopefully some good stuff that you'll like there. And as always, guys, until we get back, remember to ride safe and have fun. Cheers, everyone. Bye.